0: Thank you. If you have your Bibles, <clears throat> turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll be in there for a little bit. Um, please excuse my voice. I don't know what's going on with it. I sound like a, a horse, a dead frog, whatever. Uh, you get it. <clears throat> um, anywho, let's begin. Um, it. If you are like me, in that you're a human being, I think you can relate to this. And I wonder all the time, and maybe you do too. but I wonder, why is it that though I, and though we know how, why is it so hard to actually do the things that are good and best for us and therefore live the kind of lives that we know are the best kind of lives? Right? You know how, but why is it so difficult? To do so, I think there's countless examples of this, right? It's like maybe your mom, or for those of you who are married, your spouse or your girlfriend, whoever, someone, your friend—they nag on you a little bit. And even though you know in your heart that being patient, right, being kind, being understanding, is the best way to handle the situation, the best way to not cause extra drama, to not cause pain and hurt and tears unto others, it seems though you know this to be very true. Most of the time, or maybe a lot of the times, or some of the times, depending on who you are, you just simply cannot do it. And so when your mom or your spouse or whoever nags on you, the first thing she says, get off my back. You don't know what you're talking about. Or you say something like, chill out, mom. It's not that big of a deal. Or some of you maybe go as far as I did, and I would say, if you weren't so annoying maybe just maybe i would of course you realize as soon as you say these things and you cool down and you you know uh get a sense of yourself what in the world move this thing to over here So, of course as you cool down as the mic maybe the mic's like dude stop screaming um Almost immediately you realize that there was a better way to handle the thing that you just did. Or like maybe it's like this story. When I was 14, uh, my dad had this beat-up pickup truck. It was really, really beat-up. And um, he would just leave it at home, and that's the kind of thing he would do to like do um, gardening, mulching, whatever, anything kind of things that he would have at home. But he left it there, and he had his other car, and he would be, uh, he worked at the restaurant. He owned a restaurant, so he would be at the restaurant all day. And so, um, and he would always come home around 10 p.m. every night. And so his schedule was very easy. He would leave at 8.30 a little bit after I left, and then he wouldn't come home until 10, and then I wouldn't see him all day, and that's kind of the way that it is. But back in those days in high school uh, and in middle school, um, my, uncle, uh, my uncle had a deli, and the deli was literally right next to my bus stop, and it was .25 miles away from my house. So I would get off of the bus stop, and usually what I would do is I'd go straight across the street, walk into this office building, and that's where my uncle had his deli. I'd grab food to eat, free food, of course, and it was delicious, and then I'd walk my way home. Now, one day I was 14, and one day, for whatever reason, I had this idea, hmm, It would be a good idea, I think. What if I went home first, grabbed the truck, because the keys are always there, drove to my uncle's deli, 0.25 miles away, grabbed my food, and then go back home. Sounds like a good idea. Never mind you that I had to pass the deli to go all the way home and then drive over and drive back. But I thought it was a good idea. But, of course, as you all can probably guess, it was against the rules. My dad told me not to ever touch the truck. That he was going to teach me how to drive once I got my permit and all those things, but all of a sudden I I felt like I had these voices in my mind that were saying, "But bro, it's so close. Like nothing's going to happen. You're going to be safe. Your dad will never know because he's at the kage and at the store and he never comes home in between. So you're going to be at the deli and then you're going to come home in an hour and then no one is going to know." And so I was like, "Shoo! Pretty good thinking." So I grabbed the truck, got in it, drove .2 files. 0.25 0.25 miles literally took 25 seconds. Parked the car on the side of the street where, my if my dad ever were to come home, he would pass by it. Then went up to the deli and I was eating. I was about halfway through my sandwich, and all of a sudden, my uncle, my kunappa, goes, Guram, Peter. Phone call. Excuse- this is my uncle's deli. Who's going to call me on my uncle's deli? Right? So I walked in and he goes, Here. Here, pick it up. He goes, and it's my dad on the other line. And he goes, in Korean, he goes, Peter, have you seen the truck? Because I think someone stole it. Now, you know, I know, we all know the answer. It's right outside. <laughs> Didn't nobody steal the truck? I drove it. Because I came home. I had to come home for something because I had to grab a tool or something. And I, I, when I looked, the truck wasn't there. Do you know what I said? Don't do this. Oh, no. <laughs> That's no good. Should we call the cops? Call the insurance? What are we, we going to do? My dad, I used to think he was a really mean person, but he was more nice than I give him credit for. He goes, I remember, he goes, you sure you haven't seen it? Maybe, maybe, maybe we m- m- misplaced it. Mis- misplaced a freaking chart. Tr- maybe we m- Maybe I parked in the wrong spot. You know, I'm getting old. Maybe I parked. And I go, no, 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 no. That's not you, dad. I haven't seen it. Somebody stole it. Before I could say somebody stole it and finish the sentence, he goes, drive the truck home right now. Click. Why do we live like this? You laugh because you've been there a time or two maybe too many times to count this thing seems to me one of the most fundamental struggles of our human life and what we learn here in genesis 3 as we'll read in a second is someone is messing with our minds and that someone happens to be the enemy or an enemy of god and this someone loves to particularly mess with our minds regarding the one command that god gives to humanity do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result of this enemy of God messing with our minds about this one command results in us living our lives in a way that we know we shouldn't, but we do anyway. And hopefully today as we look, we'll find that if we understand the enemy's strategy, then we might be able to live a better way, live the way that God has taught us. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7, we'll read through through it really quickly, and then we'll move right along. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the words will be on the screen, as always, let me read, and I'm reading in the NASB, as always. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden.'" The woman said to the serpent, from the tree of the garden, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and then he ate then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings this is the word of the lord thanks be to god a bit of review we've learned so far that we and the world that we live in are not an accident someone wanted us to happen and that someone was the living god who wanted us to heaven. Happened, And the living God, therefore, created us in his image, a dignity that no other creature on the face of the planet has. Which means that we were made to reflect and represent God's character to all of creation. A pretty big task and a pretty mighty dignity in my mind. And because God has made us, right, let us make man in our image, in his image, we know that we are made for relationships. Because he's a God of relationships. Relationships with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with creation. And we call this a fourfold relational harmony, shalom. And the way that we keep this shalom and live the best life is to follow the one command that he gives us. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because we learned last week that this knowledge is a particular kind of knowledge that makes you and I think that we could possibly live independently from everyone else, including God, To which we learned last week that this uh, knowledge actually becomes the kiss of death in which we surely die. Now we get to the part in Genesis that might be everyone's favorite or least favorite depending on how you look at it. Because enter the serpent. A serpent enters a story and asks a very simple question. Did he really say? Did God really say Or in other ways, God didn't really say that, did he? Like, come on, for real? And with this one simple question, the serpent introduces the beginning. The beginning of the struggle that you and I face, that I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon. And what the serpent is trying to do is getting us to ask ourselves, if God really loves you, as he says he does... If God is, then, is really then for you and wants what's best for you, would he really tell you that you cannot eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's his plan. And because that's his plan, we got to know what this question is really doing and how this question begins to royally mess with our minds Because I think we see this happen a lot, and I think you'll agree as we talk about it, that this happens all the time. And if we know what the serpent is up to, then we might actually be able to find a way to not fall into his trap and live the best lives. So we're going to do that today. What is the serpent up to, and how do we try to avoid it? But first, a few important things to remember, and we'll try to go through these pretty quickly. One, there is an enemy messing with our minds. I have to say that. There is an enemy messing with our minds. This cannot be overlooked. We've seen it in Revelation. We've seen it in other places. God has an enemy who really dislikes God and is set out to ruin God. But since he can't actually ruin God because God is God and this person, enemy is not, he then picks on the people that God loves, which happens to be you and me. First thing, God has an enemy. He's real. The second thing you got to remember is that although Right? That the enemy, this enemy, is messing with our minds, so that although he is, make no mistake, he does not make us do anything. People always think that the serpent made Adam and Eve eat the fruit. He didn't make them do anything. They still had a choice. We are always still responsible for what we do. Which is why I think in this passage, the author of Genesis didn't call the enemy the devil or the Satan, but merely a serpent. Because I think we're not supposed to have a scapegoat. I think oftentimes we go, no, 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 he made me do it. My kids say it all the time. No, 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 Hyung-an made me do it. Mason made me do it. Connor will say. Not true. You still had a choice. And then three then, the third thing we must remember. Having said that, we must also remember that though the enemy is real and that though the enemy uh, is messing with our minds, we have a choice. It's because the enemy is not that powerful. The enemy is not God's equal. The enemy isn't God's foe or adversary, actually. The enemy was created by God, and because he was created by God, he can be uncreated. He was made by God, therefore he can be unmade by God. God isn't some, you know, it's not uh, the Avengers, Age of Ultron or whatever, whatever the new, what was the new movie called? Anyway, if you saw it, don't don't spoil anything. It's not, you know, the, the Avengers aren't messing with whoever the evil guy is. They're not on equal terms. God is way bigger than the enemy. Which is why we have hope to be able to stand up against this enemy. All I'm trying to say is that the enemy's real, he's powerful, he's active, he's at work, but he's not undefeatable. The enemy can, if you let him, ruin you, but we, through God's grace and strength, can withstand him. Which is why then we got to study the enemy's tactics, create a battle plan, as it were, then, and then be able to withstand him. So let's. Dive right in. Let's see what the serpent is up to. Here is the serpent's tactics. And it's very, very strategic and tactical. And I think it's really interesting to see what the serpent does. Step one. Isolate the woman. Notice how in this story Eve is all alone. Adam is nowhere to be seen. And I think this is true for us. When we are off by ourselves, we are vulnerable. We're like sitting ducks as the phrase says it's to tell us that no human being can stand alone and that none of us can keep believing in God alone as I said we're made for relationships we need community to keep believing and following we need fellowship to be committed to the faith it's why here we we, we talk about Bible study Sunday school we talk about small groups on the weekends and, and Friday night stuff we talk about this stuff because we alone cannot do it Now, when y'all go off to college or other places, I hear this a lot. Pastor, like, I can't find a good church. There isn't anyone that I like. Like, you know. But, you know. And then I'm like, no, I don't know. But then they go, but don't worry. Because I'm going to be good. Why? Because I'm doing devotionals every day. I'm praying every day. And I listen to your sermon and other sermons online all the time. I'm going to be all right. It's a common answer. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that every church is perfect. Actually, no church is perfect. But the church is not actually supposed to be perfect because the church is supposed to have broken people in it. If our church is perfect, that means we're not doing our job to bring the broken into this place. There should always be broken people, which means we're not going to be perfect. And how can we be perfect? Because you and I are perfect and we're not finished products until the end. So we're always going to be this place. So rather than chasing the perfect church or leaving the church because it's not perfect, our job is to understand that we can't be alone. No one can remain faithful to Jesus alone. We need other people to keep believing. Trust me. It's why one of the things that I say to your parents all the time for the younger folks is, my primary goal, number one, more than anything, is to make sure your child has friends. Because without friends, they're not going to make it. They'll give up. Step two. After isolating the woman, then the serpent gets Eve to question God's word. I find it interesting that the serpent doesn't come with some pitchfork with flames coming out of his ears as we always imagine. The devil is supposed to be this red being with, you know, those pointy ears and like the pitchfork, you know, flames out of his mouth. No, 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 no. The serpent actually doesn't present himself as some evil, like maniacal being with terror in his eyes. No, no, no. The serpent actually comes completely opposite. The serpent comes as an interested seeker. Did God really say that you can't eat? And the the serpent actually, interestingly, flatters Eve. Because what he's doing by asking that question, he's subtly just suggesting that Eve might know better than what God knows. Are you sure that's what God said? Sometimes I get questions like this. Pastor, are you sure that's what this means? Now, I'm not saying I know everything. But that's kind of the gist, right? This is always the enemy's tactic. You see it in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, right, when he's fasting. The enemy always quotes God, I don't know if you notice this, and always says very religious stuff. A theologian one time said, the devil acts more holy than a nun and knows more Bible than a Bible professor and is more devoted than a Jehovah's Witness. It's true. The enemy always operates in this disguise, hiding behind this harmless, you know, mask of someone who's trying to help you. I don't think God really said that. I think you misunderstood him. Did you hear him right? Are you sure? You sure you were paying attention? You sure that's really what he said? You positive? He starts to twist the things that God says and makes you question. Did your mom really say? Bro, I can't go to the party. Really? My mom said I couldn't, I couldn't drink that. R- really? You sure? Because, you know, your mom's a pretty cool person. I think she might, you know, she'd be okay with it. Step three. After isolating the woman, twisting God's words... Or getting Eve to uh, twist God's words, then the serpent then twists God's word himself. Now again, he does this in the wilderness with Jesus too. Oh, it doesn't work with Jesus. And he begins. Chapter 3, verse 1. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's his question. Now he's quoting God here. But he's doing it all wrong. And pay attention to the screen. You're going to need to look at it. Because... I try to get fancy with the colors and all this stuff to kind of show you what's going on. Okay? A few subtle changes he makes to God's original phrase to get from that phrase to this phrase. You can just keep that up. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of these things uh, in the world. Okay? Well, the, this is the original thing that God says. From any tree of the garden you may free eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat from it, you shall surely die. That's God's original phrase. So if you wanted to quote God, you had to say it exactly like that, verbatim, word for word. But what he does is he kind of starts to take multiple phrases. He takes any tree, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he puts them all into, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree? And then he takes the two phrases. Sorry. He takes the two phrases. Go back. He takes the two phrases, eat freely, and you shall not eat in yellow. And then he combines it into, you shall not eat. And then he gets, did God really say that you shall not eat? Remember, no mention of eating freely. From any tree in the garden, he just lumped it all together into this one sentence. And what this does is immediately it then plants suspicion into Eve's mind. Eve is now questioning God's Uh, motives. It's like saying to Eve, clearly, Eve, let's be real. God doesn't want you to live that well. I mean, because if he did, why would he tell you not to eat from this tree? If God really cared about you, why would he not let you eat this? If your mom cared about you, why would she not let you do this? My professor says that in this section, by this question, that the enemy, the serpent, is pretending to know a nobler and more honorable God which would not make such prohibitions. It's like your friend being like, your mom is cooler than that, bro. It's okay. She's not going to be that mad. Like, I know your mom, she's awesome. Your dad, he's cool. He's not going to like, I mean, don't worry about it. He's just going to whatever, right? So he's saying to Eve, Eve, clearly, clearly, that's not what he said. I mean, you must have heard him wrong or misunderstood him. But our great God, who wants what is best for you, wouldn't prohibit you from eating from the trees in the garden, would he? But God didn't say what the serpent said. Of course, we know this. He said you can eat from any tree, freely for that matter. Just avoid the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we learned last week that it's not actually a prohibition. He's not telling you to do anything. All he's telling you is don't jump off the building because you're going to die. That's not a prohibition. That's just advice. Then step four, isolate the woman, get the woman to start questioning and then lastly, or then twist God's word. And then lastly, get the women to completely twist God's word. And then you'll see what Eve does. This is fascinating. Notice Eve's response, okay? Because you'll notice that something is completely gone wrong. This is her response. From the fruit of the trees we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now I'm going to highlight for you all the different little subtle changes. Again, stay on this and we're going to go through this, right? Because she makes a lot. The first one. She leaves out freely and any. God said, from any tree you may eat freely. And she just says, from the fruit of the trees that you may eat. All of a sudden, God is no longer this generous and abundant God who gives her all the things that he wants. His generosity has been completely, completely obliterated. And we do this too. We misquote and we leave things like this. There's a verse that I've, I've uh, grown to love ever since I was little. It's Luke 12:32, and I've heard many people quote it like this: "Do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom." Anybody know this verse? Anyone heard of it? If you've been in uh, elementary school, you may have. Our Sunday school is failing. Just kidding. Do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. It sounds great, right? Don't be afraid. Father's giving you the kingdom. But that's a misquote, I hope you know. If you really look it up, this is what he actually said. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen to gladly or freely give you the kingdom. We miss these details. And they make all the difference. So that's the first thing. Eve starts to begin to omit certain things that are important. The second little change that she does, right? She changes the detail. All of a sudden, now the tree... Which is in the middle, God said. Now, I hope you remember what God had originally said. Where did that come from? Where did this information come from? The tree's not in the middle. The tree of the knowledge good of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not in the middle of the garden. Actually, in fact, the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. A few things to note here that I think Eve does, and maybe you, you get it. Eve one forgets the name of the tree. She don't even call the name. She don't even call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She just calls it the tree that's in the middle. Like so subtle. We know that this knowledge of good and evil is the kiss of death, but maybe she doesn't realize it. And the tree is now in the middle, which is to say it's central. And anything that you put in the center, you know it's always the middle and most important thing, isn't it? If you sit down at a table, what's in the middle? The most important or most amazing part of the meal, isn't it? The thing that matters to you most is always in the center. And so what now Eve has done is taken one command that God said she could not do and then placed it in the middle and made it the thing that God is talking about. It is the most important thing. She's wondering, wait, why am I not allowed to eat from this thing? It's like... Let's say you want to do something with your friends again. And they're like, yo, let's go do this. And then you're like, nah, I can't. My mom said I couldn't. And they go like, why not? And then all of a sudden, you don't remember the reasons why. All you remember is that she flat out said no. So she pissed off because your mom said no, even though you have no idea what the reason is. And then Eve does other things. Eve then adds a detail. And then she says, you cannot eat from it or touch it. Where did that come from? God never said that. Now, yes, eating from a tree would include and assume that you are going to touch it. But that was not a detail. God doesn't say it. And actually, if we just want to be technical, you can eat something without having to touch it with your hands. Eve now is adding more restrictions and making this thing a bigger beast than it actually ever was. More little things than Eve then downplays the consequences. She leaves out the word surely. God says if you eat of it, you will surely die. But Eve just says, you'll die. Again, emphasis. She starts to forget. And the last little thing that she does is she then this is herself by going from Yahweh to God. If you know, in the Bible, when you read capital L-O-R-D, that stands for Yahweh, God's name. The word God here that the devil uses or the enemy uses and that she uses is the word Elohim in Hebrew, which is just a generic him or a generic God. It's like calling your teacher, right? I had a teacher in high school. I remember her name always, uh, Mrs. Whitechurch. It'd be like calling Mrs. Whitechurch just Mrs. Teacher versus Mrs. Whitechurch. It's very impersonal. You just call them by their title. All of a sudden, this Yahweh God who breathed life into our nostrils becomes just this someone. Eve's suspicion is now on full tilt. So then step five, the enemy goes for the finish. Verse four, he goes, surely you will not die. Come on, Eve, like, are you serious? God wouldn't do that to you? Either you heard him wrong or he's a liar, but he would not do that to you. I think this is what he's saying, a paraphrase, basically the whole thing. He's saying, why would God ever say, why would a good, guy ever, good God ever say to you, you will suffer the consequences of your disobedience? I mean, like, what's the big deal? It's just one tree and one fruit. It can't be that big of a deal. How can such a little thing like eating a fruit from a tree lead to death? It doesn't make any sense. Surely you're not going to die, Eve. Come on, man. That don't even make no sense. Maybe there's a small punishment, but it's not going to be death. And actually, you know what? Let me remind you. Maybe you didn't know. But God knows, and I know, and you'll know, that if you eat from the tree, you're not going to die, actually. You're just going to be more like him. It's going to open your eyes, and you're going to be actually as happy as he is. Sure, he says he loves you, sure. But he says, you can, you, I love you, and I think you're cool, but you can't be like me, he's saying. He's saying, God is saying to you, you can't be on the same level as me. He's trying to keep you away, keep an arm's distance. But if you know this good and evil, there will be nothing separating you and him. And he doesn't want that because he wants to be bigger than you. That's basically what he's saying. Suspicion, suspicion, suspicion everywhere. And so then Eve then concludes after all this, wait. Yeah, God's holding something back from me. It's like your parents. They say no for good reasons. And your friends say, "Nah, it's not that big of a deal, man. Your parents love you. They'll be all right. They'll forgive you anyway. So you do it. So what do we need to learn from this? And this maybe is the key point. I think what we learn is that temptation doesn't begin By getting us to do something sinful or evil. That's our mistake, I think. Temptation is way more sneaky than that. Temptation begins by getting you and I to doubt God's goodness and his love for you and me. And you should know this in life. The moment you realize that someone don't care about you, you take everything into your own hands. You stop trusting that person, don't you? When I first started driving, my dad told me, don't give people rides. Drive with two hands on the wheel and don't mess with the stereo. Now it's phones, but back then we didn't have that. So don't mess with the stereo. I don't ooh, I'm dating myself. Don't turn the music up too loud and do all that dancing and nonsense that you like to do. Why? And he told me, because when you do, the chances that you will get into an accident increases through the roof. And the statistics tell you that someone your age, 16 year olds, get into accidents all the time. And let me tell you. Oh, and by the way, and, and then most importantly, sorry, I forgot this part. Most importantly, if you get into an accident, someone else, or God forbid, you might get hurt or die. So don't do these things, he said. And let me tell you, I didn't listen. And let me tell you. I've been in too many accidents. Thankfully, I haven't been in one since I, got to, since I graduated from college, but from 16 until I graduated, oh boy. We think these restrictions in our lives oftentimes are to hold us back from having fun or enjoying ourselves. But when my dad tells me that so that we don't wreck our car, ask some of the seniors, I think they'll tell you that this is true. There's reasons why these things are there so that we don't endanger someone, we don't hurt someone. But in the end, we often don't listen. We think it's less fun or whatever to drive with two hands and music low and all these things. But take it from the people who didn't listen and then didn't have a car to drive. Which is better, to drive with two hands on the wheel or not to have a car at all? This sin that we have, this temptation is rooted in this unbelief that we have. It begins when we begin stop believing that God is good as he says he is. This is the root. Think about it. Why do you and I steal? We steal because we don't think that God will provide for us. That he'll never give us these things that we want, that we think are good. Why do we lie? It's because we believe that honesty isn't the best way to love and to be loved. It's our way of saying, sorry, God, I can't trust you this time. You're not good enough. Your ways aren't good enough and you're not smart enough. I'm going to do my own way, and I'm going to be my own God. And so we begin by thinking, by not trusting God, and then we become independent and free, quote unquote. But as we saw last week, the moment Adam and Eve ate of the tree and they were free or like God, and they had their eyes open, what did they do? They had to sow fig leaves and hide behind a tree. They became dependent on these stupid things that can't help them or love them. So the enemy, in the end, his way The thing that we have learned is he's trying to get us to be these independent creatures, these self-preoccupied creatures which the enemy knows better than you and I will lead to death. The roots of a life away from God is a life of me, myself, and I. And the deeper we dive into that life, the more we become imprisoned and cannot free ourselves because only God can bear the weight and the pressure and the responsibility of being our God. No one else can do it. And then we become slaves as we take and eat. Slaves are the things that are below us. Slaves are the things that cannot free us. And then we become slaves who then need a savior, a rescuer, someone who will come to our depths, into our pit, and then put us on his back and then push us out. Which then means this is the thing that you got to learn. The question at the heart of the world maybe is can God be trusted? the root of your relationship with your parents is this very same thing. Can my mom and my dad be trusted? Do they really know what the crap they're talking about? Is God smarter than me? Does he really know better than me? Or is a serpent smarter than God? You ask, is God for me? Or is a serpent right because he says that God isn't? That's at the root of what the enemy's doing. And we convince ourselves in the end that God cannot be trusted. Which is why so many people in the world, when things don't go well, the first thing they do is, I told you God can't be trusted. I told you he's a no good for nothing and you can't trust him with anything. He's just trying to hold you back when you can spread your wings and be free and live. But here's the reason why I said that this first half of the story, Genesis 1 through 11, leads to the rest, and particularly to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we get an answer to all of this. We find in Jesus that the serpent is a liar. And that God is indeed good. As it says in Romans 8, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There goes that freely again. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up so that we can freely live, gave him freely for us, how is it that? That he is not loving, that he cannot be trusted. When the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say that? Eve should have been like, you darn right, that's exactly what he said. He said, eat of any tree, just not from that one. Because when you do, you're going to die. And when the serpent says, no, 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 Eve, he didn't really say that. He'd be like, serpent, shut up. I'm not listening to you anymore because you're a fool. I know my God. He says, eat from any tree freely as much as I want. Just don't eat the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's it. Serpent, you are a liar. Get out of my face. I want nothing to do with you. If we can do this, friends, as I invite the praise team back up, that struggle, it disappears. And you can put it into any context. This is the fundamental thing at the root of everything, isn't it? I will tell you, hey, this word of God is really important for you. It gives you life. It will change your life. For those of you, it's it's a decision. This is why I don't ever tell you to do anything. So I don't tell you in here, hey, don't be on your phones, don't do this, don't do that. I don't tell you those things because it's your decision. It's your decision to trust whether I and God is actually true or if I'm just full of it, I'm a fool. Some will tell you that you can come in here, sit in here, be at church all your lives, as long as you come every single Sunday and just sit in here, no matter what you do, you'll be all right. At least I go to church. Newsflash, that ain't good enough. It ain't going to do you nothing. Do you trust God? Do you trust this king who has set you free, conquered death, who given you salvation and rescue? I finish with this as we get ready to respond. And then we have this idea and this image of God as someone who's not all that loving. Someone once suggested to me, okay, Pastor Pete, cool, I get it. Jesus died for us. That's all good. But I feel like all he's doing is saying, like, look, this is the life. I'm over here. And y'all got to get here. So this person painted it to me like this. It's like, Pastor Pete, I'm stuck in this hole. I'm in a ditch. My life sucks. Can't get myself out. I've tried many different times. I try to climb out. I try to do all sorts of things. I try to do all these things. I can't get out. And all I feel like God is doing, whenever I go to church on Sundays, all these things, all I feel like God is doing is looking at me and being like, look, just come on out. Just look. Look, here's my hand. Just take it. And then I'm like, okay, yeah? And he goes, and then sometimes I feel like I grabbed that hand. I grabbed it. And I expected him to just pull me out. But he doesn't pull me out. He says, climb out. I got you. That's not a loving God to me, Pastor Pete. It's not enough. And then I go, well, if that's the way you think of him, it's true. That sucks. But guess what? That's not our God. I hope you know. Because our God is a God who sees you in the pit. And he did it for me. He sees you in the pit. Then he climbs into the pit. And he sits there with you at first. And he says, I know what it's like to be in this pit. And then he goes, but you know what? You don't deserve, you don't belong here. You belong in a place way better than this with me, dancing and life. So here, get on my back. Then he gets on all of his fours and he gets to the very bottom of the back and he says, get on my back. Sit on my back. And you're like, Jesus, what are you doing? What, the, what are you doing? Just listen to what I'm telling you. Get on my back. And so you're like, okay, so you get on. And then he goes, hold on. And you're like, okay. And then as you get on his back, then he brings you to his shoulders, and then he lifts you up as he stands up, and then he takes your hands, and he pushes you high like this upon his hands, and then you realize as soon as he's done and he's got his hands up here, that you're on level ground, all you got to do is step out. And then you look at him and you go, but Jesus, the pit is too deep. You can't get out. Here, let me help you. And and he says, you can't help me. I got to stay here for you because it's the only way you get out. Everybody else is wrong. I'm not who they say I am. In the beginning, we gave you one thing to follow because it wasn't good for you. But you ate it, you took it, you killed yourself, and now I got to save you. Trust this God? Is He indeed right? Or is everyone else indeed better and smarter than He? That's the question. So, friends, as we finish and just respond, will you take some time to think? When you walk in here, the reason why we do what we do is because this matters, it's life and death in the sense that if you don't get this truth, your life will one day end and you, that'll be it. It's not for any other reason, it's not because I, it's for you, it's your decision, it's so what you make it. And I promise there'll be life that you can't dream of, that you can't even fathom that no one else can give you. So you take a moment and just respond and think and contemplate and understand. And we're just gonna sing some fairly simple songs about who God is and what it is that we need to do Don't anyone tell you that God doesn't love you. Because it's a lie. Don't anyone lie to you and think that this, that there isn't life in this and through this. So you just take some time and then we're just gonna sing a very simple song. And then respond and ask that he would be our God that we can trust him, that the enemy is a flat-out liar, he's stupid, he has no idea what he's talking about, that our God is a loving God. Oh God, we we admit to you that we most of the time don't know what we're doing. Most of the time we don't take you very seriously at all. We don't um, think that this means much. But we pray that your Holy Spirit would love us, would show us, would teach us, and would give us this desire that you are better than everything else that there's no one like you, that you give us the choice to love you. And then even when we ruin everything and we take that one choice that will kill us, you then come after us and says, I will rescue you because you've become a slave to this knowledge that is not good for you. But I love you, I care for you, you are mine. You were made for me to enjoy life in a way that only I can give you. So will you come and receive it? And oftentimes, Father, we won't climb on your back and let you push us out. We'll say, no, we're, we're good right here. But help us to sing and to know and to realize that you are better than everything, that we need you more than anything else, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can call you our Father, our God, our Savior. Amen. Will you stand and join us as we sing a few songs of response.